You probably know that your phone is tracking you right now, but you may not know exactly how this tracking works. That's what we're going to be talking about in this podcast. We're going to be exploring some of the fun apps that you download, but they might come with Trojan horses. I'm not talking about viruses. I'm talking about secret trackers that you don't even know about. So many smartphone apps come with trackers that are collecting libraries of specific data on us. And where does all that data go? Well, straight into the hands of companies you've probably never even heard of. It's an essential part of the mobile app economy, and it's going to be going on for years. But the COVID-19 pandemic is bringing the shadowy behavior more into light. Welcome to Tech You Should Know. I'm Kim Commando, America's Digital Pro. And before we jump into the wild world of app tracking, I'd like to open up today's episode on a whammy from Malwarebytes. Their report on working from home has a shocking statistic. Get this, remote workers are now the source of up to 20% of cybersecurity incidents. <laughs> Yikes. In other words, cyber criminals are hitting us hard. I'm not just talking about phishing attacks. Mm-mm. We're also seeing a rise in ransomware hacks. And these are tough times. Many people are turning to public Wi-Fi for their remote work. A recent study from ExpressVPN examined the ways Americans' internet use has changed since the pandemic. It found that 32% of Americans needed free internet access from outside their homes. So while free internet can be super helpful, there's a big downside. Free public networks are notorious for poor security and privacy. And if you browse in public, someone's probably watching you. The hotspot operator could peek through your browsing history and see everything that you're doing. Other people sharing the network might find clever ways to just spy on you. They set up these fake networks, you connect to it, and then everything that you type goes through it. But there is a simple solution to take your privacy back. It's called encryption. I say simple, but there are a few layers to this issue that you need to know about. And we're going to talk all about it in today's podcast. Basically, you're going to learn how encryption can help you fight against the app tracking. And this is a major, major problem. Targeted advertising is one of the biggest enterprises on the web. Companies are so hungry for your data. It lets them target you with specific ads. They can pinpoint which products you're most likely to buy and when. Some companies use ad tracking as their primary business model. Ever heard of Facebook? Yeah. They just don't give you a profile for free because they love you. The social media powerhouse makes most of its money by selling ads on its website and on mobile apps. But how does it get all this information? Simple, by tracking you and your data. If you still have a Facebook profile, you've got to check out the Off Facebook Activity Tracker. It's a free tool that shows you some shocking stuff. For example, Facebook knows when you use your coffee app or view articles on your news app. It's pretty creepy. Thankfully, you don't have to stand for this kind of data collection. You have a bunch of protective tactics you may not even know about. In this podcast, you're going to learn the tools that you need to use so that this way big tech will stop tracking you. This is very important intel that you don't want to miss. So stay right where you are. How private is your internet history? Mm, not very. What about your apps? You may not think about it, but hundreds of Android apps have sent location info to X mode. That's a data broker that sells location data to U.S. military contractors. You may wonder, well, what does the military want with my information? Hmm, that's what we're wondering too. 
So which apps were compromised? Messaging apps, dating apps, and even prayer apps. Each site has tens of millions of downloads. And get this, Xmode is just one of a dozen companies that buys and sells access to your location data. It's a huge business. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. There are some very powerful players with their toes in the water. And that's why I'm so thrilled to welcome Sean O'Brien to this podcast. He's the principal researcher at ExpressVPN's Digital Security Labs. So, Sean, let's start at the top. Everybody knows that their smartphone tracks everywhere they go. But how invasive is the tracking? And what are the different ways that we are being tracked on our phones? Sure. So um, I think consumers are aware of uh, more traditional types of tracking, right? Um, So when they give permissions to an app, they might be aware that they're giving location data. Um, And they're also aware, uh, potentially, hopefully, um, that using a cell phone in the first place, you know, um, sort of exposes them to location tracking and an array of sensors that are in that phone that can track them doing things. Um, But the types of tracking that I see and that we investigated in our most recent investigation are more pernicious than that um, and are much more difficult to um, find, uh, basically take a small research project to to detect. Um, and we found it's, it's very widespread, um, especially location and um, proximity tracking of the, of the kind I'm talking about. Yeah, the proximity tracking is really interesting to me because, as you mentioned, we all know that, well, find my friends, right? Of course my phone knows where I'm going. And the apps and the maps and everything else knows what I'm doing. But talk a little bit about BLE, this Bluetooth low energy technology, because I'm not sure that a lot of people are really aware that this even exists. Yeah, so uh, and this is where things, of course, really get inter- interesting. And in the last, I'd say, 10 years have, uh, you know, sh- sort of shifted quite a bit in the um, data tracking ecosystem. Uh, we are now surrounded by Internet of Things devices, right, IoT, um, and that's smart speakers and smart televisions and, you know, little tiny devices on the shelves of, let's say, a grocery store or maybe in an overhead intercom and those kinds of things. Um, those devices, uh, what, what are called beacons, um, can use a variety of different technology, but primarily are using something called Bluetooth, which we're now all very familiar with, the thing that allows people to have, you know, AirPods and so on. And um, that's basically short-range wireless, right? So if you walk into a room and uh, one of these devices is there, um, y- your phone, let's say, or some other device can ping that beacon. Um, And then the beacon can have a good idea, a very actually fine-grained idea of where you're standing, how long you're standing there. Maybe you're standing closer to another beacon. So now there's some triangulation going on and and figuring out your path, let's say, through a grocery store or at a concert or maybe even who you're traveling with, um, who's in your home, et cetera. So with COVID and the pandemic, Does this also assist, obviously, in contact tracing? Yeah, so one of the interesting things about uh, the contact tracing proposals that came through, especially the big one from the joint uh, Google and Apple proposal, is that it relies on exactly the kind of proximity tracking um, that we see traditionally in a more um, advertising or retail context, not something that has been used before, to my knowledge, uh, for public health. So, um, yeah, contact tracing that was proposed by those two companies basically uses the same sort of logic, the same sort of, um, you know, detection to try to figure out if you're next to someone um, who may have been exposed to COVID-19. 
Of course, uh, there's a wide array of apps doing things that aren't in a public health context, um, and we found quite a few of them. And uh, that data can be used for all sorts of purposes, not just, you know, mapping you and your movements, but even making guesses about, let's say, your sexuality or sexual preferences in general, um, perhaps, uh, you know, where you frequent the most, uh, and like I said, perhaps uh, who you're hanging out with and who may be inside of your home. And that just sounds so pervasive that we are carrying around this device and it's truly tracking. And it is. It's tracking everything that we do. When we, when we start looking at all the different data points that a company possibly has about us, um, do you have any idea what that number might be? I mean, is it 10,000 data points on an individual? Is it 20,000? Is it more? So it's difficult to say on a specific individual. So two things to keep in mind here. Um, the first thing is that um, those profiles don't necessarily match to us perfectly, right? So there may be multiple profiles on an individual. There almost certainly are. Um, and also this sort of digital shadow that you have, you know, these doppelgangers out there may or may not resemble um, actually what you do, actually, you know, what your interests are and so on and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of junk data in there, too, and, and the data surveillance industry is, is quite aware of that. Um, we're looking at, you know, total, it's trillions and trillions of data points for the amount of people being surveilled. Um, one of the trackers we looked into, location trackers, uh, Quadrant, um, claims, you know, millions of daily active users and billions of data points on those users. And that's just one of these location trackers. Okay, so so you did this research. How long did it take you to pull all this together? Uh, it, it took us uh, the better part of, I'd say, six weeks. Um, obviously, we do some background research as well. Um, this is something that's part of a new initiative at ExpressVPN, a digital security lab. And uh, we're, we'll be doing some more interesting things, too, that will uh, bear fruit and uh, maybe a little smaller. But this was sort of our big, uh, let's say, coming out party for data privacy today. <laughs> <laughs> Your debutante. <laughs> um, so you found trackers in 450 apps. Uh, tell us about some of the trackers that you found. Sure. Um, so 450 apps, they've been downloaded at least 1.7 billion times from Google Play. Um, one of the ones that is primarily, you know, sort of in the news recently is one called X Mode. Um, that one has been, you know, in a number of different stories um, in, you know, the Wall Street Journal and Vice and TechCrunch and so on. And um, it's well known to have connections to um, other data providers who are sharing data with law enforcement and the military. So um, it also is um, targeting specific ethnic groups and religious groups, um, for example, um, Muslims, and um, a wide range of folks um, across the spectrum through dating apps primarily. So um, they're a very interesting case. Uh, we sort of started by looking into them, found connections between them and um, other location trackers, and sort of expanded that circle outward until we had a cluster of 12 different location trackers that um, have, you know, different degrees of relationships with each other. Now, I assume, but I'm just asking that because nobody ever reads the terms and conditions of an app. We just see it and go, okay, sure, I accept. Is, is any of this disclosed in the terms and conditions of the app? 
So um, the, well, let's say the permission systems in these operating systems do give you, in Android, in iOS, you know, on an iPhone, they do give you a certain amount of information about what the app, uh, what the app is doing, right? So Android might pop up uh, location permissions for an app. Um, the consumer just sort of taps on that and says, okay, uh, maybe it's required for the functionality of the app. So it's a navigation app or some sort of mapping app, right? We, we looked at a lot of travel and navigation apps, for example. Um, when the consumer is doing that, they may be giving consent, you know, in a sense, um, but they certainly don't have the type of opt-in, freely given, informed consent um, that regulation like the GDPR would require um, for the type of uh, data surveillance, location tracking um, that these trackers are doing. So, you know, very, you know, briefly, yeah, I, I don't think in any real way uh, consumers are consenting to this. Um, and as you say, terms and conditions, nobody reads anyway, and we sort of reflexively click through. So it's a real problem. So you mentioned Google Play, and you can always read the reviews, and it's always sometimes pretty telling when you get in there. Um, what about Apple's new initiative to put almost like a nutrition label on apps? Sure. Well, there's two initiatives that, that Apple is working on. Um, the first one is the nutrition labels, and those are self-reported by the developers, right? So these snippets of code, um, software development kits or SDKs um, that we're classifying as location trackers, um, they have to be self-reported by the developers of the apps. Um, the apps basically, you know, build their apps, they grab a bunch of code from around the internet, shove it into their app for a variety of different reasons. Maybe they need map functionality, maybe they know full well what these trackers do. You know, they don't always know exactly what's going on. They may be just looking for something useful for their app. And then they bundle that together and they publish it in Google Play. Um, what I've found, you know, personally dealing with app developers, especially small-scale sort of startup, you know, college students and so on, is they're often not even aware of what SDKs are being bundled in their app. So if they have to, for example, report on a nutrition label, um, you know, the types of privacy issues, uh, the types of permissions that are needed, et cetera, um, they wouldn't be able to do so. It takes basically studying your own app and being very careful about the libraries you're pulling in, whose code you're using, and so on. Gosh, you know what? That just sounds like a complete nightmare right there to, uh, to try to unravel that. We're speaking with Sean O'Brien. He's the principal researcher at ExpressVPN's Digital Security Labs. And when we come right back, we're going to talk about what you can do in your life and some ways that you can avoid some of this tracking. And I mean, not all of it, but most of it. So stay right where you are. We're talking about location data, location tracking, how all this information is being harvested from your smartphone, and you probably have no idea that it's happening. And joining us here on this podcast is Sean O'Brien. He's the principal researcher at ExpressVPN's Digital Security Lab. So you have 450 apps that you analyzed. Uh, they were downloaded how many times? Uh, 1.7 billion and change. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and the data is going all across the board to marketing companies, advertising agencies, government entities. What can somebody do? I mean, you know, instead of using Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp, of course, you can use Signal, right? 
Yep, exactly. Um, I think the first thing that's really important to note and sort of dovetails on the conversation about Apple and the nutrition labels is that transparency here is important and where it's provided, a consumer can at least make some choices. So, you know, I don't want to dismiss things like the nutrition labels that's going in the right direction. Um, and Apple is also, of course, uh, pushing, um, you know, more transparency and controls on consent around the advertising identifier. So this is an ID, um, you know, Apple has theirs, it's IDFA, it's called, Android has theirs, it's AAID for them. Um, it's sort of like almost a social, social security number, that kind of identifier that just follows you with your phone and, you know, when you upgrade your phone and transfer your information over potentially. So um, trying to make sure that you're not using apps that are requesting that high level permission, um, you know, if you're provided that transparency is really important. Looking at your apps um, and sort of doing a, um, you know, hygiene check uh, is important. So if you don't need to use an app, uninstall it, right? Um, if you don't need to get permissions, don't do that. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, with uh, these encrypted messengers, there has been a real focus um, on privacy from consumers. Um, certainly clamoring for uh, better security with the leap from WhatsApp to Signal. Yeah, you know, when you look at all the data, just say, for example, that Facebook Messenger uh, leaks about you, I, I'm looking at the list that you provided, and, I mean, how many different data points do you have there? I mean, I'm looking at, you got, what, five rows? <laughs> five columns, rather, and, and 12 rows? Uh, what are off of this list? What do you think is most what What was most shocking to you that you would think would be most shocking to to our listener right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, putting things in this context can be kind of difficult if you're not familiar with, with you know correlating data. But an example I like to use, which you see in the average supermarket, let's say, since maybe even the '90s, um, you give someone your postal or your zip code right at the checkout counter. Um, and then maybe they ask for your date of birth or even just year of birth, right? Using just those two data points, you can narrow down pretty uh, closely, you know, how many people named Sean O'Brien have that birthday um, in an area, or if you don't have the name, there's only, you know, two or three of us, right? Um, there might just be one person in that zip code, depending on the size of it. So um, you can find people pretty easily with a small amount of data. This is exactly what goes on with Facebook Messenger and some of these other messengers. Even if they're encrypting and keeping your conversations private, right, which is sort of a new thing that we have thanks to, you know, disclosures like the Snowden disclosures a few years ago, um, even if the conversation is private from these entities, uh, there's metadata. So who you're talking to, how long you're talking to them. That's the stuff that I think consumers really need to think about. Um, it's really the valuable stuff from a uh, surveillance perspective. And it also makes it a lot easier, you know, to make determinations about an individual from an intelligence perspective. You don't want to be reading through threads of their conversation unless you really have to, but you do want to know who they're talking to, how long, where they're going, you know, maybe how long they're staying someplace. People are always shocked when I say, here, give me your iPhone. And I go under system services and on your iPhone, I'm sure you know this, is that you have a full dossier of everywhere you went and how long that you've stayed there. 
And, you know, Apple says that they're doing it for advertising and then you can always opt out and good things like that. But it's as simple as just going through your phone, which is actually a really good point that you mentioned, is to to go through each app and to go through your settings. And, and when you're sitting there and you're mindlessly watching yet another Netflix series, because that's anything and everything that we've been doing since the pandemic started almost a year ago, is start going in and seeing if your flashlight app, if you really need that anymore, because the flashlight built in. So why have a flashlight app? A QR code reader, why do you need that? You can, now it's built into the OS. And maybe you don't need a compass. I don't know when's the last time, when's the last time you used a compass app, Sean? Really? I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's exactly it. So uh, one of the interesting things about, you know, relating back to the study was that a lot of these apps aren't like huge brand names apps brand name apps. Some of them are pretty large, like Tango is a big streaming platform now. Um, but a lot of them were utilities, like the kinds you mentioned, you know, weather or uh, remote control apps, which were downloaded, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of times. And uh, turning your phone into a remote control for some temporary, you know, uh, accessing something or in maybe something you did five years ago where you needed to talk to a smart TV or something, um, you know, that's probably not something you need to carry around now, right? And all that time that you're carrying it around, it's gathering information, it's logging it, and you don't know what's going on with it. Um, and as I said, it's sort of a research project you have to do to even figure that out. This is off topic, but I'm just curious. Do you think we're ever going to get to a point where we can have full control of our data? Like Tim Berners-Lee, that's I mean, that's his idea is that there would be a silo of our personal data on the Internet. And then we would be able to give permission or not yeah, and then so, um, actually look at that data. Do you think that's really going to be possible? Um, and I had the pleasure of talking to Tim Berners-Lee and some other folks um, a couple years ago about that. Um, and he's certainly very enthusiastic about that. I know a lot of people are. Um, I've worked on some initiatives that at least give you a little more control over your data. It's not really clear exactly what that means, right? Um, and it can be very difficult to suss out, you know, um, how much uh, folks are willing to, um, you know, give up certain functionality for better privacy if that's needed in that context. Um, a very basic thing, just to use an example, right? Um, we know Bluetooth is doing this kind of tracking, um, but people still want to use a lot of Bluetooth devices, right? This tracking is happening constantly um, over that channel. But are you really willing to turn off Bluetooth or even remember to do that, right? Um, Even if folks are given technologies um, that, uh, like, maybe Solid will be awesome, right? Um, It still takes a large amount of education. And there's a huge economy behind data. It's the thing that is sort of propping up um, the most powerful entities uh, on the planet. Um, you know, you saw in the last year they've made trillions of dollars. Um, data is the thing powering that, and I don't think it's going to be very easy for uh, those folks to give up control. Even if it is, we really need to have a lot of outreach. We really need to have a lot of education. Um, it doesn't mean you don't stop fighting and pushing for these things. We've made some really good strides, right? Um, but, yeah, it, it's going to be a hard battle. Yeah, there's also, um, I'm sure, Jared Lanier, who he has this proposition that he he told me that if we could actually let people control their data and then make money off of their data. So instead of big tech making money off of their data is that they could. So like a family of four, as he explained to me, mom, dad, two kids, 
may be able to make $20,000, $24,000 a year off of their data at that point. But we are so, so far away from that. Um, we're speaking with Sean O'Brien. He's the principal researcher at ExpressVPN's Digital Security Labs. And when we come right back, we're going to talk about encryption. You know, we throw around the word encryption, but are you really sure what encryption is and how it works and what it does? So stay right where you are. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. We're speaking with Sean O'Brien. He's the principal researcher at ExpressVPN's Digital Security Labs. Um, Sean, how would you define encryption, say, to your grandmother? <laughs> and I have had to do that, certainly. Um, <laughs> so encryption is basically scrambling data, right, obfuscating it so that you can keep it private. At its you know, most basic level, um, that's what it does. Um, mathematics is on our side in this regard. Um, there's some very clever math that allows you to send data one way, right, um, and verify it on the other end and unscramble it. Um, but if someone's snooping on that transfer, looking at that scrambled information, unless they have uh, some other prior knowledge, you know, this is when you hear people talk about keys and key transfer and all that, um, then they're not able to unlock it. Um, so very basically, it's kind of like having a safety deposit box or something like that and sharing keys to it and then putting messages in that box. And then there are some numbers associated. I was trying to explain these numbers to my mother yesterday because she said what she asked me. So what is the difference between 128 bit encryption or 256? She said, aside from double the numbers, how would you answer that? Sure. So computers get um, faster and faster all the time, right? 128-bit uh, encryption is still crazy, crazy, you know, uh, difficult to unscramble. Um, and the whole challenge here is trying to make things so computationally expensive, um, not only in, in the sense of processing power, right, but over time. So um, something like 256-bit uh, you know, uh, shot two fifty six. You know, all these algorithms. Um, something like that would take so long that the supercomputers we have now, even if there were as many of them as the number of grains of sand on planet Earth, would take longer than what we think the heat death of the universe is going to be. <laughs> so longer than the lifetime of the universe. Yeah. So um, that's what they're trying to do. Um, you probably hear about quantum and, and, you know, all these ways to break it potentially, but there's some workarounds for that too. So it's just trying to be really, really clever with math, um, do things that we can do to make it really hard to crack. And so when we talk about encryption for the consumer, they know, I think everybody should know by now that you want to make sure it's not just HTTP, it's HTTPS, right? Uh, and you want to use a VPN, a virtual private network, because it kind of gives you that tunnel 
uh, and that encryption so that the websites that you're visiting, that they can't tap into cookies because that's yet another tracking mechanism uh, where whereby they can harvest those cookies and then use them. And that's why you see the, that pair of ugly boots that you looked at once and that follows you all around on the Internet. Um, when we when we start looking at VPNs in particular, and full disclosure, I use ExpressVPN. I have for many years. Uh, and what I like about it is that it's really easy to use. I mean, it's just one click. Um, how How does that encryption work on a VPN? Yeah, so the principles, again, and just to kind of keep things simple, um, the principles are not that different across these technologies. It's just making sure you have a trustworthy um, vendor in this case or a trustworthy, you know, um, server if you set up your own, let's say, and we're a geek doing that. Um, you've got to make sure that every ch part of that communication chain, you know, is protected. Um, and a VPN basically makes sure that at least when you're sending information, requesting data, let's say from a website, and you're running that VPN, that that is, you know, encrypted. Now, um, that uses, uh, uh, you know, uh, RSA or, you know, public-private key um, algorithm algorithms. And the general sort of idea of this, and this is sort of the basis of, you know, Signal and these other technologies too, is that you have a public key that you're willing to share for verification, and you have a private key that you never give to anyone. Um, and with, you know, VPN technology and these easy-to-use clients, of course, it's doing a lot of that work for you. But you would never share your private key with the server you're trying to request information from, let's say if you're going out to watch sports on the Internet, right? Um, and if you were, you know, talking to an individual, let's say you're encrypting your email, which unfortunately is done less and less, it seems, these days, um, you would share your public key with the person you're talking to so they can verify and unscramble your message, but you would never share your private key. That you sort of have to keep, um, you know, as secure as possible. So there's a certain amount of responsibility that goes on. Um, VPNs are great technology for solving the problem of, let's say, you know, an adversary trying to peer into your traffic, but it's certainly not the entire puzzle. And um, that's one of the reasons we emphasize, uh, certainly at ExpressVPN with all of our blog posts and how-to articles and in this study, you know, these other dimensions of privacy that people need to worry about. Yeah, because it isn't just a silo. It's not just one thing. It's not just one piece of the puzzle. Security is a huge topic that covers anything from OS updates to firmware updates and everything in between. Um, let's let's talk about the pandemic uh, because we have so many people that are still continuing to work from home. And I don't think it's ever going to go back to the way that it was pre-pandemic because including myself – you know, I found I can be really, really productive at home <laughs> without having to, like, do my hair and makeup and get in my car and drive across town. Um, what kind of what kind of trends have you seen as far as security loopholes and problems that people need to be aware of? Sure. So, I mean, earlier you mentioned sort of these issues of data control, right? Can we control our own data? And maybe could somebody, you know, make money off their own data? Um, those choices are really hard for consumers to make, um, not just because, like, at the moment it's hard to make the right choices, but also because in the far-flung future you can't um, necessarily see what the impact of the data you're giving up 
um, is going to be. Um, that definitely happens, I think, a lot in a home context with the tools you choose to use and so on. Um, I certainly see, and I think the cybersecurity reports over the last year have proven um, that when people are working from home, they let up their guard a little more. Um, they tend to do things, you know, for a transactional, you know, just to get something done quickly. Um, and they don't think the way that they might in a different context. Um, so we're seeing lots of ransomware targeting people who work from home. Um, we're seeing the traditional attack vectors like, you know, email phishing being used. Um, we're seeing a rise of, uh, you know, things like SMS and text messaging um, being used to deliver um, this, this malware or to steal someone's information. Um, that kind of social engineering stuff is definitely on the rise. Um, the other thing which is kind of distressing and where VPN can be certainly very helpful um, is that uh, especially low-income folks, and there's a lot of people out of work, there's a lot of low-income students out there, um, they have to rely on public Wi-Fi more than they certainly should. Um, so a survey we did at ExpressVPN found that 32% of the people we surveyed um, had to look for free internet access outside of the home. Well, when you do that, when you go to a cafe, when you're just trusting some public Wi-Fi and you don't even know where it's coming from, or maybe even accidentally connecting to someone else's Wi-Fi, um, you have to be very careful about what you do on that machine, especially through the internet, but also just opening any app, which is, again, using the internet, even though people don't necessarily put those two pieces of the puzzle together. So having a VPN in that context is very important. Maybe using a technology like Tor, or some of these anonymity technologies, you know, can be very important. I, I noticed on, in, on one of the documents that was sent over uh, in preparation for this podcast, you're talking about contactless technology. Um, which, you know, how many times have we washed our hands in the last year? <laughs> okay, it's like, okay. Um, and Amazon has their new technology with their ghost store in Seattle, which I think is now being implemented, and I'm sure it's going to be in Whole Foods all throughout, where basically they're, they're taking a picture of your palm, right, in order for you to pay uh, because your palm, I guess, is more of an identifier than your fingerprint, which I didn't know that until I just read that recently. Uh, talk a little bit about this contactless technology and security. Sure. So if you look at, you know, advertising technology especially and the kinds of tech like this Bluetooth beacon tech and so on, um, if you look at the context that it's being put in in brick and mortar, um, you know, uh, places, public places, cities and smart cities and so on, um, you're seeing some very exotic uh, technology coming out, like like you mentioned with Whole Foods there. Um, and I've seen, you know, ultrasonic frequencies being used, you know, for different things. Um, Uber seems to be wanting to use this, for example, um, to pay and, and verify that the driver of the Uber, um, you're hopping into their car, is the correct, you know, driver and so on. Um, this is all very good in a sense, right? We want to be safe from a public health standpoint. Um, we want to make sure we have real verification before we get into a vehicle. Um, but at the same time, of course, um, this technology can be used for all sorts of data enrichment um, by these companies that are implementing it. Um, so it, it's a danger. Um, for example, uh, Passport Parking, that's an app that many cities in the U.S. Um, use, and uh, they received complaints a couple of months ago about the privacy policy. Basically, it was really porous. They were sending data all over the place to uh, many different countries, um, to many different third parties without any consent, right? Um, 
And that sort of thing can be happening with a lot of this new technology. There's a bit of a gold rush for this. And if you can prove that you have the coolest new technology to make sure people can be safe from, um, you know, touching things, from, you know, just walking into a store, filling your cart and walking out, you know, that is the dream. And certainly with brick and mortar stores and malls and so on, uh, on the way uh, downward uh, because of uh, the pandemic, but also just general trends. Um, I think a lot of these retailers are relying on this technology to sort of save them. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, we spoke a little bit about contact tracing apps, but before we, we end our chat today, um, pros and cons, obviously, a lot, you know, how, how far your privacy goes. And now we also have bad actors with fake apps. Um, what's your take on it? Yeah, so contact tracing works. We know this, right? A public health officials tell us this, and we should listen to them. Um, but also, we have plenty of historical examples of traditional contact tracing, phone surveys, and you know, um, you go to a restaurant and they keep a log that you were there, and that sort of thing. Um, we know that it's really helpful to identify clusters of individuals um, who may have uh, come into contact with someone who has, let's say, COVID in this case, right? Um, the issues with contact tracing apps are some of the same issues we see with any useful app or potentially useful app. Um, they can be poorly designed. They can be sharing data with too many different actors. Um, they can be rushed into development, which certainly many of these are. Um, they could just be using tech that is sort of impossible or very, very difficult to lock up and still make useful. You know, so we saw um, in places like Norway, you know, they basically implemented, you know, uh, contact tracing app uh, and, and an entire system behind it um, that worked worked very well for what it was trying to do, but the data was not private at all. It was not respectful of European Union rules. Um, and then they basically had to be warned and, and shut down the whole system. Um, so that's not very helpful, does not put a lot of faith uh, on the consumer end in the, this technology. Um, an example that's sort of close to home for us, as I said, we looked at uh, location tracker X mode, um, and that was a, definitely a big represented in 199 of the apps we looked at out of the 450. Um, well, the Swiss COVID app, um, some other researchers found, um, was sending data to one of the network endpoints for X mode. Um, so it was in a public health app that a lot of people were using in Switzerland, right? Um, the same kinds of problems we would see, you know, when using a Facebook Messenger or a WhatsApp or, or these kinds of apps can happen with public health apps. And certainly we have to be careful before embracing them wholesale. Uh, one of my recommendations, at least right now, until we know a little more, is that if there's another way to do contact tracing or, let's say, you know, passport vaccinations, if you can have a paper copy or, you know, just a screenshot on your phone or a PDF or something like that, um, I would rather see those technologies leaned on a little more. It's old-fashioned, but it's safe from a privacy perspective, right? Yeah, it is. Or, you know, you have, now we have people taking pictures of their COVID vaccine card, right? Put, putting it up on social media. I'm like, why would you even think that was remotely even a, a good idea or even something you should be doing? <laughs> um, hey, Sean, thanks for joining us. A lot of good points. And, uh, and any final thoughts? Sure. Um, you know, people, I think, are more privacy aware than ever now. Um, and it's great, this, this interview, right? This conversation is a sign of that. So um, 
people are not going to learn this overnight. I don't want everybody to sort of be nihilists and not wanting to, you know, even try. It's really important to start small, take sort of baby steps, and over time, you know, decrease the amount of data trails you're leaving and increase your security using things like encryption, VPNs, and so on. Now, before I let you go, I've got to wrap up on today's biggest takeaways. First, don't use WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. When you want to send messages, use Signal. Second, encryption is key. Lawmakers around the world are talking about undermining end-to-end encryption, but it's crucial, really, in our day-to-day lives. And thanks to the pandemic, you can't hang out with your friends like you used to. We've got to all social distance and watch out for the virus and more. Well, that means more and more people are going online to socialize. And when you're sending messages and emails, you need to protect your security. Plus, encryption makes online purchases safe. It helps to protect sensitive data like photos, passwords, and the health information that we store on all of our devices. Encryption is more important than ever. It gives you freedom and security. And so make sure that you check out a VPN if you haven't already. Rule number three, be careful of security risks, especially if you're working remotely. I mean, and remember, we're all living in this touch-free revolution. As people fight COVID-19, companies are looking for new ways to limit that touch, especially true for restaurants. For example, if you go to the Cheesecake Factory, you're not going to get a menu. You're going to get a QR code. That way, the menu pops up on your phone, so the restaurant doesn't have to worry about you getting germs or spreading germs. It's nothing personal, just trying to keep things safe. And when it comes to contact tracing apps, be careful. They do come with privacy issues. Countries all around the world are pushing for these apps, and there's no wonder why. I mean, they can let you know if you've come into contact with COVID-19. They can keep you informed. But there are just a ton of fake apps there masquerading as government apps. So you've got to be really careful. Do your research and fight for your right for encryption. Now, ExpressVPN is a sponsor of my national radio show, and they have been for many years. But I've used ExpressVPN for so many years And it's so simple to do. You just download the app, you use it, you click to connect. It's not going to slow you down. It's an amazing app, really. And as a listener of this podcast, you can get three months free on a one-year package. Just go to this special address, expressvpn.com slash Kim. That's expressvpn.com slash Kim. It's just a few bucks a month. Well worth it. Expressvpn.com slash Kim. I'd like to give a huge thanks to Sean O'Brien for coming on the podcast today, Mike James for pulling it all together, and Serena O'Sullivan for all the reporting behind the scenes. We have to say thank you to our partners in this podcast because they help make them all possible. And you can stay up to date the easy way. Just drop by commando.com every single day. That's with a K, of course. And if you'd like to dump Facebook, well, head over to the Commando community. We don't track and there's no ads. And you can get a free 30-day trial over at getkim.com. No promo code needed. That's getkim.com. And I'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you learned just one thing, do me a favor. Give us a great five-star review wherever you do get your podcasts. I'm Kim Commando, and as they say, I'll see you on the radio.